Hey, miserable bitches. We are back with another episode of Misery Manor. My name is Cody. It's going to be a solo episode this week. But before I get started, make sure you leave your manners at the door. Welcome, everybody. Yeah, like I said, just a solo episode this week. Um, Kind of a busy week this week. So I said this on our Patreon episode that I just recorded that will be released um, this week as well. But so this week, I don't know if you remember, about a year ago, my dog Remus, who is a huge, almost 100-pound Doberman, um, tore his ACL in the vet told us, who's a dear friend of ours, that it would only be a matter of time before the other ACL tore, just because they tend to kind of overcompensate. So sure enough, it did tear. This time was not as bad as last time. He was in so much pain. Um, He didn't even cry. We didn't even know it really tore until he started like limping a little bit. And we're like, we better get that checked out. So we got it checked out last Monday. It is torn. Um, so we decided to go ahead and get him surgery. So that is what he's doing today. But although he is 100 pounds, he is not scary at all. He, In fact, he is just like a big old baby. My baby. So I've got to watch over him this week and just make sure, you know, he doesn't lick his wound. Doesn't try to run or anything. I don't think he will. Um, but just got to be very protective of him. So we didn't really have much time to record this week. And then also on Wednesday... I am getting my permanent veneers in. I've been walking around with temporaries on for the last couple of weeks. So I'm very excited to get my permanents on my teeth just in time for summer. You thought I smiled a lot now? Well, baby, just wait. I'm going to be smiling and I am going to be blinding people with the whiteness that these teeth are about to show. I think they call it toilet bowl white or like Hollywood white. Either way, it is white. So I was like, if you're going to give an ears, Cody, go all the way in, baby. So that's so a busy week, um, but we'll be back again together next week. But um, I do have an episode. I did not want to like not give an episode for y'all this week. Um, we already took a month break. We're back, I promise. So I have an episode that I'm actually really excited to share with you all. I found this case very, very, very interesting, um, very sad. Um, so I'm going to get into this. Oh, and if you want to be a Patreon, please be a Patreon. We have some really good episodes. They're, you know, exclusive episodes that aren't to the public. Um, we really, really, really appreciate the support on Patreon. You know, all of that money that you donate helps us to, you know, further our equipment and just get better and better for you guys. So if you want to be a Patreon, just go to Google and type in Patreon Misery Manor, or you can see the link in our Instagram bio at Misery Manor Podcast. Um, and yeah, make sure you're following us on Instagram too, so you can see all of our updates. And before I get into this case, please rate, review, and subscribe. It really, really, really helps us. Oh my God, is there an ant on me? No, I don't know what that was, but that scared me. <laughs> oh my god, it feels so weird recording this by myself because usually someone would laugh with me and it's just dead ass silent here. Okay, let me get into this case. 
So on this episode of Misery Manor, we are going to be exploring the case of J.C. Duggard. So this is every parent's literal worst nightmare. When she was only 11, on June 10th, 1991, J.C. Duggard was kidnapped on the way to school in Lake Tahoe by Philip and Nancy Garrido. J.C. would have to endure torture, rape, and loneliness for the next 18 years until she was finally rescued in 2009. How could this happen? What went wrong? How could they not find her for so long? So all, those are all of the questions that went through my mind that we are going to cover in this episode. And of course, the family got assistance from the FBI and many leads provided by the public. However, after exhausting all resources, there was still no sign of J.C. Duggard. So for nearly two decades, it seemed as if J.C. would never be rescued and that she was just another child that was lost and never found. Before her kidnapping, J.C. Lee Duggard was a typical little girl. She enjoyed playing with her friends, being outside with her neighbors and school friends, playing games, and she was a very happy-go-lucky little girl. She was blonde hair and had a big, beautiful smile. So JC was born on May 3rd, 1980, and when she was seven, she lived with her mother, Terry, and her stepfather, Carl, who was a carpet contractor. So JC's biological father, Ken, Slayton was not involved in her life, nor in the investigation that followed her kidnapping. Although J.C. was very close to her mother, she was not as close with her stepfather, Carl. And let me point out, not that he was like horrible to her by any means. I just think um, maybe it was a case of, you know, she wanted to, she thought that her mom was going with to another man and you know, you know how some kids are like, you're not my father. So I think it might have been one of those situations, but Carl did care for JC a lot and did all that he could. So in 1989, Terry and Carl gave birth to JC's half-sister, Shayna. So with two kids on their hands, the growing family decided to move. So in September of 1990, the Duggards moved from Arcadia, California to Myers, California, which is a rural town south of Lake Tahoe, because they thought it was a safer community to raise a young family. So the family had big hopes and huge dreams for their growing family. They thought the small town with a one-year-old and a 10-year-old would be the perfect place to settle down. Sadly, though, JC and her sister would not have much time to make memories together because the following year after Shana's birth and their big move, J.C. was kidnapped just yards away from her home. So before we talk about the actual kidnapping, let's talk a little bit more about the kidnappers and some history and some background on those motherfuckers. So Philip Garrido was born in Pittsburgh, California on April 5th, 1951. He grew up in Brentwood, California, where he graduated from Liberty High School in 1969. Philip's father, Manuel, later stated that his son had always been a, quote, good boy as a child, but changed drastically after a serious motorcycle accident as a teenager. So after this accident, he said it all kind of turned, it all kind of went downhill in that Philip turned to drugs such as meth 
and LSD. As Philip got older, he started to rack up a history of sexual violence. According to the El Dorado County District Attorney's Office, he had already been convicted of many crimes by the time he, he had abducted J.C. Duggar. Also, in a court testimony, Philip openly admitted that he habitually masturbated in his car by the side of elementary and high schools while watching girls. So he's fucking disgusting. So let's talk about some of his sexual violence. So in 1972, Philip drugged and raped a 14-year-old girl in Contra Costa County. Four years later, in June, in South Lake Tahoe, he convinced a 19-year-old to get in his car. Then he handcuffed and raped her. Later that year, in November of 1976, he attempted to do the same thing to a 25-year-old woman, but luckily she was able to escape and alert the neighbors. However, Philip obviously was very pissed that she got away, and just one hour later, one hour later, Philip was back on the prowl and lured in another victim to his car. He took her to a warehouse where he raped her for five and a half hours, but luckily a police officer was patrolling and noticed a car parked outside the warehouse and then a broken lock on its door. So it raised some suspicious for him. So confused and quite suspicious, the police officer knocked on the door and was quickly greeted by Philip. Catherine, in a mix of panic and cries, then emerged and begged and pleaded for help. Philip was arrested on the spot. So this crime alone earned him a prison sentence of 50 years, finally. He was convicted on March 9th, 1977 for this crime and began serving his 50-year federal sentence on June 30th of that year at Leavenworth Penitentiary, Penitentiary, okay, I'm going to say prison, in Kansas. This is how he met his duo in the case, Nancy. So at Leavenworth, Philip met Nancy, who was visiting her uncle, another prisoner. Nancy continued to visit Philip, and eventually the two fell in love. On October 5th, 1981, he and Nancy were officially married at the prison. How fucking romantic. Philip, now this part pissed me off. So Philip only ended up serving 11 years of that 50-year sentence. The, the parole board deemed that he has changed, he was a better man, he's on the right path, um, and they were very confident in his behavior and described Philip, quote, as not contributing to the menace of health, safety, and morals of society. Bull fucking shit. And we'll see why. So it did not take Philip very long, and after his release, he visited one of his victims who was working in South Lake Tahoe. He showed up to her place of work, approached her, and said, quote, It's been 11 years since I've had a drink. Um, terrifying. So the victim, who was obviously startled and scared for her safety, quickly reported this to Philip's parole agent. She was like, quote, Philip found me. He came up to me. He tried to talk to me. I'm scared. He's out. How did he get out so soon? And the agent basically told her, oh, I'm sorry about that. Did he hurt you? Did he touch you? Anything. Tell me what happened. She's like, no, no, no. He just came up to me. And the parole board was like, okay, yeah, we'll take care of it. Thank you for calling. You know, all that bullshit. However, the agent essentially just brushed the incident off 
and just noted that in his file that, quote, to subject to electronic monitoring would be too much of a hassle based on hysteria concerns of the victim. So they basically were like, eh, we're not going to take this too seriously. He didn't hurt the lady. She might just be scared. Um, yeah, we're not going to do anything about it. So with Philip getting away with this, he began to hunt for his next victim. And he found her on June 10th, 1991, J.C. Lee Duggard. Only this time, he had his sidekick, Nancy, to help. On June 10th, 1991, early that morning, J.C.'s mother, who worked as a typesetter at a print house, left for work early. Carl, J.C.'s stepdad, offered to bring her to school. So J.C. wore her all-time favorite pink outfit to school that day. Carl dropped off his 11-year-old stepdaughter off at the bus stop. With backpack, lunch, and her books in hand, she was off to school. Carl was never concerned because this bus stop was only a few yards away from the family's home. And, you know, he said his whole, bye, sweetheart, have an amazing day. At this time, JC was in fifth grade and she was super excited about a field trip that was coming up. It's all that she could think about. It's all that she was talking about. She was ecstatic. However, an amazing day was the last thing that this would turn into. Instead, Two strangers had been keeping an eye on the bus stop, and they found their victim in J.C. Once Carl drove off, the couple approached J.C. in their car. In their car, J.C. thought the man was asking for directions, so she went up to the car to help out. However, when little J.C. got close to the car, Philip tased J.C. with a stun gun, and her small body fell to the ground unconscious. His wife, Nancy, got out of the car and ran over to J.C.'s little body and pulled her into the vehicle. Once inside, Nancy and Philip removed her clothing, leaving only a butterfly-shaped ring that J.C. would hide from them for the next 18 years. It was her only reminder of her life at home. So here's the part that really made my heart sink. I mean, all of this did, but this was just, oh, I'm just picturing it in my head. So like I said earlier, JC's home was literally only a few yards away and Carl hadn't quite made it back into the house yet. And he heard the screams and cries, turned around and saw the abductors take his stepdaughter into their car. Reacting as quickly as he could in the frantic moment, he hopped on a bike and chased after the car, but obviously he could not keep up. And they were gone, and J.C. was out of his sight. Now, Carl was completely distraught and fell to his knees in agony and pain. A million questions and emotions were going through his mind. Although Carl felt weak and defeated, he knew he had to react quick before they got too far away. He alerted the authorities and described the situation to them to the best of his ability. Meanwhile, in the vehicle... Nancy had covered J.C. with a blanket and held her down as J.C. drifted in and out of consciousness during the three-hour drive to their property, which was 120 miles away in Antioch, California. The only time J.C. spoke is when she pleaded with them, quote, please, please let me go. My parents cannot afford a ransom. Ugh, and that just, how does she know what that even is? She clearly knows that the family struggles financially in some, some situations, and that was her main priority. Ugh, 
makes me so sad. So within hours of JC's disappearance, local and nationwide news outlets started to cover the story. Within days of JC gone, dozens of local volunteers assisted in the search effort, which involved nearly every resource within the community. Within weeks, tens of thousands of flyers and posters were mailed to businesses throughout the United States in search of the missing 11-year-old. Since JC's favorite color was pink and it was the color she was wearing when she was abducted, the town was covered in ribbons of pink as a constant reminder of her disappearance and as a demonstration of the support of her family by the community. But try as they might, unfortunately, all of these efforts to find JC led nowhere. And even dogs, aircraft, and the FBI could not track her down. The stress and all of the emotions that came with the disappearance crumbled the family in more ways than one. Unfortunately, JC's parents, Carl and Terry, ended up getting a split a few years after JC's disappearance, with Carl explaining that the stress of the kidnapping was what caused the marriage to snap. Even years after JC was found, Carl struggled to come to terms with what happened that day. Eventually, the situation began a blame game between Carl and Terry. Carl, in an interview with the Daily Mail, said, quote, Looking back, maybe I regret I did not give her more hugs. Terry's family thought I was mean to her. I think they thought I was the reason JC did not run away from the Garritos. But I can tell you now, I really cared for that girl. So, let's talk about JC's life in captivity and when she first arrived to the Garritos' home because it is truly haunting what this poor girl went through. Upon arriving at the Garritos' home, Nancy and Philip took JC out of their car. Her head still covered with a blanket behind their house where they had designed a series of dilapidated uh, tents and sheds for her to live in. Philip placed JC inside his tiny shed that he had been um, working on for quite some time and it was soundproof. They told her if she screamed, no one would hear her. Philip then handcuffed her and left her naked in the shed, which he bolted shut, warning her that trained, mean, scary, and vicious Dobermans were outside the shed and would attack her if she ever tried to escape. So this 11-year-old is literally petrified. So as soon as JC entered her new, quote, home, Philip forced JC into a shower to wash herself. Before she knew it, Philip was naked and getting in the shower with her. This exact moment was the first time JC had ever been exposed to a naked man. During her first week in captivity, JC remained in handcuffs because they did not want to risk her escaping. JC spent many days alone, with her only human contact being Philip and Nancy, who sometimes brought her fast food and talked with her. She longed for somebody to just sit and talk with her and let her know that everything is going to be okay. But sadly, it wasn't. Nancy and Philip began referring to JC as Alyssa, and she was no longer allowed to associate with the name JC. That was her old life, and Alyssa represented her new life with the Garritos. As if the living conditions were bad enough, Philip 
provided just a bucket for her to use the restroom. A week after the kidnapping, Philip raped JC for the first time while she was still handcuffed. The rapes continued as he did so at least once a week for the first three years of her captivity. So that means age 11 through 14, she was being raped at least one time a week. At least. At one point, Philip provided JC with the television, which she was very excited about because she spent many days alone and bored. JC was forbidden from watching the news and remained unaware of the publicized search for her going on. After Philip started to trust JC, he moved her into a larger room next door where she was handcuffed to a bed. He explained to her that, quote, demon angels let him take her and that she would help him with his sexual problems because society had ignored him for so long. Philip, still very actively into drugs, would occasionally go on these day-long meth binges, which he referred to as, quote, runs. So during these, quote, runs, he would force JC to keep him company by performing sexual favors and engaging in various other activities with him. Anything he told JC to do or say she had to do. Philip went into his drug state of mind and made JC listen out for voices he said he could hear from in the walls. So he would grab JC and he, they would like put their ear up against the wall and he would say, listen to the angels, they're talking, they're talking. And they would have to listen for it. He would also tell JC that, that he was chosen servant of God and after the drug binge he was, was over, Philip would start crying hysterically and apologizing to JC, but would quickly change his emotion to rage and anger with threats to sell her to people who would put her in a cage for the rest of her life. There was an instance where the Garrido's neighbor, Patrick McQuaid, actually ran into JC while in captivity. Now, this is wild. So as a young child, he recalled meeting JC through a fence in the Garrido's yard. He spoke to her through a fence and said, hi, what's your name? And she responded with, JC. And he said, do you live here or are you just visiting? To which JC said, I live here. At that point, Philip came running out of the house and took her back indoors. He eventually built an eight foot tall fence around the backyard and set up a tent for JC. This instance occurred the first time that JC was allowed to walk outside since her kidnapping. Then things took a turn for the worse. After continuous rapes, JC eventually became pregnant with Philip's child. Almost three years into her captivity, Nancy and Philip informed JC that they believed that she was pregnant. There were obvious signs that led them to believe that. JC, who was age 13 at the time, watched television programs on childbirth to prepare for the birth of her first child. She was terrified. She was scared. She didn't know what her body was going through. All she had to do was rely on the information that Nancy and Philip gave her, as well as some sort of show that she was watching on the television in hopes that it would lead to her being able to figure out what to do. So, 
yeah, let that sink in for a little bit. So on August 18th, 1984, JC gave birth to a healthy daughter. Although she was now caring for an infant, JC was still raped by Philip weekly. Before she knew it, she was pregnant again. Her second daughter was born three years later when JC was 17 on November 13th, 1997. Now, JC took great care of her two young daughters by using information that she had learned from the television and homeschooled them to the best of her ability. To cope with her captivity and loneliness, JC and her daughters would plant flowers in the garden. Oh, I forgot to mention, they also made her give birth, like, in their house, like, with just them two assisting. So I'm sure that went lovely. So one day, Philip told JC that her two daughters were from now on had to refer to Nancy as their mother and JC as their older sister. Even when it would be just them around, they were to call Nancy mom. For fear of what might happen if they disobeyed, they did what they were told. Now, JC obviously had little to no one to speak to, so she kept a secret journal and wrote about her feelings, dreams, and emotions in it. On July 5th, 2004, she wrote, quote, It feels like I'm sinking. I'm afraid. I want control of my life. This is supposed to be my life to do with what I want. But once again, he has taken it away. How many times is he allowed to take it away from me? I'm afraid he doesn't see how things... I'm afraid he doesn't see how the things he says make me a prisoner. Why don't I have control of my life? In her journal, she wrote about being afraid, lonely, depressed, and feeling, quote, unloved. Initially, she wrote about her family and wondered where they were looking for her, or if they missed her, or if they have moved on, or even forgot about her as a whole. So as you can see, days turned to months, months turned into years, and JC's isolation and depression led her to crave any type of human interaction. She so longed for it, even if it came from the Garritos. But soon, JC would be rescued. On August 24, 2009, just over 18 years after being abducted, Philip Garrido visited the University of California Berkeley campus with his two daughters, is what he said, to inquire about hosting a religious event at the school. With him, he had a four-page essay containing his ideas about religion and sexuality, suggesting that he had discovered a solution to the problem um, behaviors like his past crimes. He wanted to call the program God's Desires. So he went to this school with a plan to open up this program because he felt like he was a chosen one. Not. So obviously the school listened to what he had to say, but due to protocol, they needed to run a background check on him. Unfortunately for Philip, and fortunately for us, when UCPD conducted this background check, they were quick to discover that he was a registered sex offender on parole for kidnapping and rape. So the staff at UCPD noticed that the girls also looked stunned, pale, malnourished, to say the least. So after the background check and concern for the girls' safety, they quickly contacted Edward Santos, who was Phillip's parole officer. What's more shocking, Philip's parole officer was completely unaware that he had children living with him or children at all. So when the school called them, they're like, hey, yeah, we noticed we had a Philip Garrido in our office. Um, 
failed his background check. I'm a little concerned. His two daughters look horrible. So Edward's like, wait, what? He doesn't have kids. And they're like, oh, yeah, no, he he brought two children with him who looked very miserable and said that they were his two kids. So two days later, Philip um, Garrido showed up for their parole meeting, bringing with him his wife, Nancy, the two young girls and a third young girl or a third young woman. So Edward, who was confused, was like, hi, who is this that you have with you? Philip, who felt defeated, gave up the charade and confessed everything. The two youngest girls were his children, but not to his wife, Nancy. Edward said, describing the confession, quote, he nods his head three times and says, a long time ago, I kidnapped her and raped her when she was just a child. So Philip and his wife, Nancy, were obviously arrested and law enforcement swooped in to rescue J.C. On April 28, 2011, they pleaded guilty to kidnapping and raping of J.C. On June 2, 2011, um, they were sentenced, Philip was sentenced to 431 years to life in prison and Nancy was sentenced to 36 years to life. So as you know from earlier, Philip had been on parole for a 1976 rape at the time of J.C.'s kidnapping. J.C. ended up suing the state of California on account of the numerous lapses by law enforcement that contributed to her continued captivity and sexual assault. In 2010, the state of California awarded her $20 million, which is a little over a million for each year that she was held captive. So finally, after 18 years in captivity, the two UC Berkeley officers, suspicious of Philip Garrido, helped to finally solve the mystery of J.C. Duggard's disappearance. But a huge question remained unanswered. How had Garrido's parole officer failed to find J.C. in their backyard? If it was his job to go there, check on them, you know, they search around, they do this, they do that. How did she get away for 18 years? So naturally, the law enforcement system's failure to find the missing girl, despite numerous check-ins with her captor, led to a significant amount of criticism from the public getting word of this, and they were fucking livid. In particular, Phillips parole officer Edward Santos was ridiculed up and down by the media. So in November of 2022, so last year, Santos finally broke his silence in the case after 13 years. So he said, quote, I searched the entire house and never found anybody there. I looked in the backyard and it was a typical backyard, a typical backyard that was just, it wasn't atrocious. It wasn't well kept. A lot of debris and a lot of appliances were left on the lawn, overgrown shrubbery and grass, nothing unusual about it. Edward said that after hearing about Philip's suspicious UC Berkeley visit, he visited Philip's home one day and asked about the two girls who he had been seen with. He said, quote, who were those two young girls you had with you? Why have I never seen them before? To which Philip just told them that they were basically just a family friend and that the father of them had picked them up and they were just with them for the day. So Edward later said, quote, you know, I tell people the planets, the moon, the stars were all in perfect alignment that day. There were multiple times I could have just documented this and let it go, but I didn't. I sit here, I think to myself, if I would have just let it go, if I just would have let it be, but I couldn't have done that. On this particular day with those two little girls, I was their guardian. So speaking indirectly to JC, 
Edward said, quote, I wish I would have been able to discover you being captive the first day I walked into that house, so I am sorry for that, but I did my job that particular day. Incredibly, JC has managed to turn her life around and move on from the imprisonment, not letting it take control of her entire life. She said, quote, my name is JC Duggard, and I want to say that because for so long, I wasn't even able to say my name, and it feels so good. In 2011, she published her first memoir, A Stolen Life, and founded the JAYC Foundation, so the Jace Foundation, an organization that provides support to families recovering from abduction and similar traumatic events. JC said in her memoir, A Stolen Life, quote, funny how I can look back now and notice how the secret backyard didn't really look so secret. It makes me believe no one cared or was even looking for me. In 2012, she received an inspiration award at the Diane Vaughn Furstenberg's third annual DVF Awards at the United Nations. In July of 2016, she published a second memoir, Freedom, My Book of First. She has appeared on numerous television programs and podcasts to discuss her experience in captivity, as well as her journey to recovery. JC said, quote, there is life after something tragic happens. Quote, life doesn't have to end if you don't want it to. It's all in how you look at it. Somehow, I still believe that we each hold the key to our own happiness and you have to grab it where you can in whatever form it might take. The end. Now, this case, there was a lot of information. There's even more information on, um, so crazy enough, which I, I'm sure many of you have heard of the, um, it's called Stockholm Syndrome. So initially when the police officers and the parole board and all them were questioning JC and the two little girls, um, they were actually very, very, very upset to see their father arrested. Um, it's all they knew. He, he did care for them. You know, he fed them. They were his daughters. Um, and they were actually very, very, very upset to see their father arrested and sent off to prison. And JC too, she was very, um, upset. It's all she knew. Just think about it from age 11 all the way to what's 22. Did I do that math right? No. Uh, 18 to 29. <laughs> um, is that right? I'm horrible at math. Yes, 29. Um, that's all she knew. And that's, she was forced to have a connection with them if she wanted to survive. So it's all she knew. I mean, I can't even remember life when I was 11 years old. So especially at that young, everything that she's went through, I am just, I, I wanted to do this case to just give light to her story. There's a lot of books. There's a lot of documentaries. Her case is just truly, truly inspiring. And continues to be even all the things that she's continuing to do outside of that outside of or like in her daily life is truly inspiring so if you ever feel like you're having a bad day you're just kind of going through the motions you know just know things can be can be worse and you just got to push through honey so hope you enjoy it follow us on instagram at misery manor podcast if you have any ideas on any cases Feel free to send them our way. Emily will be back next week and we will have a really good episode for you all. Hopefully like always. So yeah, have a great week and I will see you. Well, I guess I won't see you, but I will be in your ear 
soon enough. Bye. Thank <laughs> you.